All right, well, this morning is November 4th. It is 2007. Our message this morning is sharper than a knife. Some churches are meeting in a compact center this morning, and God bless them for that. We are meeting in the compacted center this morning. Our church is starting to look in different directions uh, for the possibility of a building because there are not very many empty seats left in here. And uh, our parking lot is pretty darn full. That's a good problem to have, isn't it? Amen. I encourage you all to be in prayer with us about that. It is an important thing. I have been in churches that lacked no material possession. Plenty of room, sound equipment, all of those things, but they were not a church. In our church, we have the opposite. <laughs> the church is assembled in the people, and all we lack are the material things. And that's okay, because we serve the God of all provision. This morning, I want to read to you a scripture that comes from Chronicles 28 and the ninth verse. We'll jump right into our message, Sharper Than a Knife. It says, And you, my son Solomon. Well, from its context, if we're speaking to someone's son named Solomon, who is speaking? King David. So King David's talking to his son, Shlomo. <laughs> That's the Hebrew nickname for Solomon. Sounds almost bad, doesn't it? No? Good. Y'all are all pure. And you, my son, Shlomo, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. God wants a wholehearted devotion. He wants a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. Come on, can you say that's deep? Yeah, that's deep. He doesn't just know what is in your heart by watching you. He knows what motivated your very thoughts. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. That is good news, isn't it? If you seek Him, Solomon, He will be found by you. Everybody who seeks, Fine. Didn't Yeshua teach us that? This part's not been preached very much, though. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, He will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a temple as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. I would suggest that what David said to Solomon is still true today that you could insert in this passage your name, that the Almighty God is saying that He wants your wholehearted devotion, that He's saying He wants you to serve Him out of a willing spirit, not just submission to somebody's rules. He wants you to want Him. Those of you that are married understand this is all any spouse ever wants of their spouse. They want them to desire them, to love them to honor them, to appreciate them, and before all others. Our God is no different. His very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods alongside me. He doesn't want to share you. He wants your wholehearted devotion. Now here's something very, very important. God spoke through David to Solomon, and the same is true for you. He has chosen you. Our New Testament applies these very promises to us. It says that we are a chosen, royal, holy priesthood before God. God Himself, the God of the universe, chose you. You are not here by an accident today. 
He drew you to this place so that He could tell you out of all the peoples on the earth, He chooses you. And why did He choose you? He has something He wants you to do for Him. Build His temple. Build His kingdom. Build His people. We have set before us a choice. One that is life and one that is death. We have a chance to live in heaven on earth, obeying and living in the kingdom of heaven by our choices, or live in death or hell on earth by obeying our carnal and natural instincts, putting them before God. As we move on in this message, sharper than a knife, I wanted to ask you a question about two people that wield various different... Various different. <laughs> That's brilliant. Different kinds of knives. What is the real difference between a surgeon and a butcher? Now, those of you that are cynical from years of abuse by the medical field may see no difference. But in theory, there is a huge difference. Although they both carry sharp instruments of division, the butcher wants to kill you. We'll go ahead and put that on the board, right? Butchers don't heal cows, do they? They kill them. And why does he want to kill you? Why does the butcher want to kill you? Yeah, he wants to take your flesh and use it for selfish purposes. He wants to cut you in order to kill you. He's going to cut you deep enough as many times as it takes to take your very life from you so that He can take the remnants of your ruined life and use it for His own purpose. So a butcher cuts to kill. A surgeon... Well, that's not the right way to spell surgeon, is it? A surgeon cuts you for a different purpose. To start with, he's supposed to only cut you to heal you. Is he doing it for his benefit? Get your mind out of the American medical system. <laughs> In theory, is a surgeon cutting you for his benefit? No, it's a selfless act. It's a selfless act for your benefit. Surgeons cut to heal you. Butchers cut to kill you. I have been preaching messages in the last several weeks that were introspective in nature, meaning it was intended to get you to look into the own recesses of your heart, to look at your life, to determine what dwells there. We started with a message called spiritual cardiology about examining your heart that is the wellspring of life. Is it polluted or is it clean? Is what flows out of it pure or is what flowed out, flows out of it something that is negative and cannot sustain life. We moved on to a message about Gethsemane and the olive press. When you are under stress and pressure, you get to see what is in the recesses of your heart. We learned that our King, Yeshua the Hamashiach, when He is under the most pressure in the world, in a garden called the olive press in Hebrew, Gethsemane, the words came out of Him, Your will be done. This is our model for life. Whatever is in our heart, we need to pour enough of God's will into it that when pressed by the enemy, what comes out is God's will. We moved on from there to a message called The Message in a Bottle. Is your container, your life, clear enough for people to marvel at and see the message inside of it? You are an actual correspondence from God to the rest of the world. Supposed to be representing a communication that says God desires to reconcile the world to Himself 
in us. We looked at 2 Corinthians 5 to teach that message as if we were all ambassadors of God. This morning as we talk about sharper than a knife, we're going to look at a slightly bigger picture than just your life. Slightly bigger picture than just living your best life now or being a champion. A slightly bigger picture than just how this affects you today. You find out that our lives are the sum total of our choices. People do not just wake up with miserable eyes. It happens by consistently choosing what is evil rather than what is holy. Before we get there, I thought we might look at some instruments of division. Turn with me to Genesis. Does that surprise you that we go to Genesis? Where else the beginning of a message be? A book titled, The Beginning. We'll be in Genesis, the third chapter for a moment. Something has happened between God and man. God has given very few commands to mankind. The one thing that God has said, look, I'd rather you not do something. I would rather you not eat from a tree representing the knowledge of good and evil. I would like to be your God. I would like to show you what is good and evil. I don't want you to choose for yourself. I want that right for you. I want to direct your lives. A very subtle animal influenced by a not-so-subtle devil coerced man and woman into joining each other in sin of rejecting God's authority, His lordship, His right to choose for them what is good and evil, and they took it for themselves. We don't want God to decide what is right for us. He is not the standard. We are the standard. This caused something. In the 8th verse, we see something that had never occurred in human history before. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He hadn't seen a relative in a very long time. And you love them. And you hear that they are traveling from one city to another to come and visit you. You might even go wait in your driveway so excited they're coming. They're not filled with excitement that the God of the universe, who has put them on the most beautiful planet in all of the universe, with the most abundant resources in all of the universe, with the best life possible, is coming to visit them. What do they do? They hid from the Lord, God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? Didn't Jesus say, I came to seek and save that which was lost? You find out that from the beginning of this story, sin has entered it and caused a division. It has cut a rift between man and God. And God shows up while man is hiding from God. And He says, hey, I'm here. I'm a constant. I'm the standard. Where are you? And mankind is hiding from Him. In Genesis 3.15, God takes what the devil has just sown in mankind. The devil has sown a division between God and man, between the tree of life and mankind. And God attempts to refocus the battle. In Genesis 3.15, God speaking says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, the devil worked very subtly to put an obstacle between the author of life and the people who needed that life. 
He tried to put a division there so that when God showed up, excited to see mankind, excited to see the work of His hands, the work of His hands was not excited to see Him because we were ashamed of our behavior and we hid. The devil sowed division meant to butcher and kill mankind. And what did God do? He turned right around and He said, you know what? This division that exists between God and man should not exist. Where the division should exist is between man and this enemy of God. You find out that from the very beginning of this book, what happens is man is placed upon an earth that God has spoken into a realm of darkness and said, let there be light. And He separated the light from the darkness. The rest of this book is about God teaching us to divide that which is good from that which is evil. He sets forth this demonstration in nature every day. He sets forth this demonstration through the stories in this book. Warfare has been placed between God and man, and God is trying to redirect it somewhere else. You should not be at war with the Almighty through your actions, through your beliefs, through your deeds. We should be at war with the enemy. So there is a surgeon that wants to heal us, and there is a butcher who wants to kill us. In 3.23, we see a loving act that is necessary because of sin. It says, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, it's a longer story than I have time to tell you today, but God did not want man to eat in a fallen state from a tree of life and live forever. A separation because of man's actions has occurred between man and God. And what God did is said, I'm going to divide your sinfulness from me. I'm going to put you outside my camp. But He did it for a reason. So that our warfare would be focused on the devil and not on him. On the butcher instead of the surgeon. You ever been mad at a surgeon? The day after your recovery starts pretty easy to be mad at the surgeon. I have watched many people go through surgeries, and I remember the ones that I've had. While my wisdom teeth are hurting, the surgeon is a hero. He is coming to save me. When I suffer the repercussions of having pulled them from my body, the surgeon is not my friend. Mankind is on a seesaw, teetering and tottering back and forth with our opinion of God based on what God is doing in our life at the moment. But we need to put it in its perspective constantly. God is like a surgeon. He only ever cuts you. He only ever hurts you in order to heal you. And at its very heart, it is not to punish you. It is a selfless deed on His part for your behalf. Every time the devil cuts you, every time, it is to butcher you, to use your flesh for some selfish ambition of His. In the fourth chapter, we find something at work. The division between God and man has spread. Now we have two boys. They have vastly different names. Does anybody know what the name Cain means? Think of this before you name your child something like this. Cain. Spear. Right? 
It's an instrument of division. It's a sharp blade. While Abel means vapor or spirit, it's a life-giving mist. In mankind, we have two kinds of people. Those that will align with the butcher and those that will align with the surgeon. And there is a war that is raging. Because we know this potential is in us to misunderstand God, to carry hurt, to carry resentment, to choose wrong when we should choose right, God speaks to Cain. And in the fourth chapter and sixth verse, we hear these words. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Why did He not say to Cain, If you believe what is right, will you not be accepted? God is not nearly as concerned as the American church is with what people believe. In fact, the New Testament mocks this idea. The book of James says, You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. This is mocking the idea that belief alone sustains your relationship with God. God says to Cain, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. We choose every day whether we are going to visit the butcher or the surgeon. The surgeon will always require something of you that is hard. He will require you to master natural instincts. He will require you to suppress carnal urges. He will require of you to follow the doctor's orders for healing. The butcher will make no requirements of you. He will not ask you to put away anger. He will not ask you to put a smile on a downcast face. He will ask nothing of you. But He will take everything from you and leave you broken with your flesh being used for His purposes. Nobody else in here, I'm sure, has ever watched those VH1 specials about where the rock stars are now. Nobody in here has ever seen an episode of MTV Cribs. Or for a different generation, maybe the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Nobody's ever seen those things in here, right? Because we're so holy, we fast and pray 24 hours a day. 365 days of the year and it's evident before you, right? Those people are never happy. They're being slaughtered by a butcher constantly. And if it were as evident as I'm making it through my words, they wouldn't do it. But the devil's working is subtle. He has a way of taking your life from you without you realizing it. Let's talk about tools for a moment. We've got general categories. We have a surgeon who heals and a butcher who kills. But let's talk about tools. How does this happen? How many of you have met the devil face-to-face and had a conversation? I've not. I did have an opportunity in 1993 to meet the King of Kings. He spoke to me. I don't care whether that fits in your theology. I don't care whether your pastors or elders like it. It happened to me. I'm a man with the experience and I'm not at the mercy of any men who merely have arguments. It happened and it changed my life. But I would submit to you that most of the time we are not meeting the butcher himself. We are not meeting the surgeon himself. We are meeting their ambassadors, their proxies. Cain was a murderer. A murderer. 
And you have never committed murder. But have you murdered a reputation? Have you murdered a career in order to step beyond somebody in a corporate setting? Have you murdered their career? How about a relationship? Were you jealous of someone's relationship and so you murdered it by sowing butcherous seeds into it? There's a principle in the Bible that we will discuss as we move forward in this message. It is the Hebrew phrase, Kal ve komer. What it literally means is that what you do in a light principle is as important as what you do in a heavy principle. And there's a progression in the Word. Jesus taught on this pro- progression from a Hebrew perspective. He said, if you look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Why would He say something like that? Because he sees the path that one leads to the other. This is throughout the Scripture, so we need to examine some of these tools. Turn to the Proverbs. The easiest way to find this book would be to split it in half. Start in the Psalms and then move to the right. That will put you in the book of Proverbs. I can't apologize for my zeal this morning. It can't be done. I have good things happening in my life. I have spoken difficult words to people that have accepted them as the words of life and their lives bear and show repentance. I have in my own family restoration working. I have nieces being baptized. I have a church that is growing and it is not because we are watering down the Word. Seeing God advance in ways that I never thought possible. As the Scripture says, immeasurably more than I could ask for or imagine. This fills me, fills me with a zeal for His Word. The obedient are always blessed. We have often thought of blessings or cursings in a very Greek mindset that thought of them as some shimmering thing spoken from the mouth of someone else. Blessings and curses are the results of your choices, period. Nobody jumps out of an airplane and then calls gravity a curse. You may feel cursed, but you're experiencing gravity as the result of your own choice to get out of the airplane. We should not act as if the negative repercussions of our sin in some kind of way are a spiritual or mystical thing. Doing God's will will always bring you a blessing. Not doing God's will will 100% of the time bring you a curse. And there is someone who has taken that curse upon himself for you. Y'all in Proverbs? 16th chapter. We're just starting to roll now. In the 16th chapter, the 28th verse says, A perverse man stirs up dissension. A perverse man stirs up dissension and a gossip separates close friends. Part of the butcher's tools are perverseness. Perverse. I feel very uh, sympathetic towards people on Wheel of Fortune now. I've never had to spell in front of people before. Perverse. What is perverse in its heart? We talk about perverse all of the time from a sexual standpoint, but perverse is looking at anything crooked when you should be looking at it straight. That's the Eric version. The... King Eric translation, if you will. What else did he say? 
Perverse man stirs up dissension. Wow, I can't the pen that writes. Dissension. Anybody want to tell me what dissension is? This is the opposite of being in one accord. A crooked person, a perverse person, stirs up dissension. That means creates various factions and divisions. And how do they do it? Through gossip. Part of the butcher's tool are perverse thinking, various factions, and speech that doesn't come from God. None of us would identify with Cain. None of us would think of ourselves as butchering other people. But when you look at somebody and say, did you hear about them? Do you know where they came from? Do you know what they've done? I don't know how Beth could be friends with Nick. I mean... This separates close friends. It's part of the tool in the enemy's tool belt. It is no different than taking out a construction saw and sawing two people apart. Do you know what the Bible calls that when you saw two people apart? When you rip them and tear them apart? King James says, put them asunder. It's called adultery. These things are not always in a realm just between a husband and wife. This has to do with keeping a covenant, a covenant that God bestowed upon mankind to listen to the surgeon instead of the butcher. You may or may not have to turn a page. It's in the 17th chapter and the 9th verse. I figured we'd all keep it tight this morning. Don't want to lose you with the flipping of many pages. He who covers over an offense promotes love. Now, when you think of covering over an offense, please don't think of sweeping it under the rug. I've watched churches die because pastors sinned publicly but would not repent publicly. Covering over an offense means that you allow your love for the person to outweigh the wrong they just did you. That promotes love. But whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. The butcher has another tool in his tool belt. It has to do with something that is habitual. First John says, habitual sin is not of God. When we develop lifestyles, the reason we've been looking at our lives introspectively, the reason we have looked at under pressure, we've looked at the message that is in the bottle, and all of these messages is to identify that which was meant to kill and harm you versus that which was meant to heal you and help you. The butcher's tools are really not that complicated. Perversion, dissension, and gossip that separates is the equivalent of murder because that's where it leads. Repeated habitual sin, unrepented sin, is the equivalent of idolatry because the king of kings says that we're to put these things away. And when we cling to them, They become idols in our life rather than serving God. Well, God addresses this very situation. This will be found in the book of Ezekiel in the 14th chapter. So from where you're at, you will want to make a right in your Bible. After you turn through several books, you will find the book of Ezekiel. (coughs) 
the first verse of the 14th chapter, some elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts. Idols in their hearts. Do you think that they built stone statues and then embedded them in the pump that beats blood through your body? A heart in the Bible has to do with the very center of a human being. In the very center of these human beings, they had things that God wished to remove because He is a surgeon and He will cut you to heal you. He'll remove cancer from you. The devil, however, will only cut you to separate you from God like He did in Genesis 3 or from your fellow man like He did in Genesis 4. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. <laughs> An idol in your heart shows up in a certain way. A stumbling block before your face. How many of you in the Christianese that we tend to speak have said, oh, I don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone? You mean, need to make no mistake. The first person you were ever a stumbling block to when you have idols in your heart is you. This is why Jesus says, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will be able to see the speck in another man's eye. God is not just against idols because they will harm everyone. He's against idols because they put something between you and Him obscuring your vision of Him. Should I let their, them inquire of me at all? Isn't that a great question? If they've sinned, if they've turned their back on God, should He let them inquire of Him at all? Well, if you were God, what would you say? Well, you don't have to answer that question. Think back in your life for a few moments. Who has hurt you? Who has stood against you and said something bad about you? Who tried to kill your reputation? Who tried to destroy a relationship that you had? How do you feel about them now? You want to sit down and have hand-holding long walks on the beach? Do you withhold fellowship? Do you hold bitterness? You need to be careful that the wrong they did you doesn't become a poison that you've drunk expecting them to die. Our God is willing to reconcile 100% of the time. He is willing. Should I let them inquire of me at all? That's a rhetorical question. For us, it would be a flat no. <laughs> but from God, it's yes. Therefore, speak to them and tell them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. When any Israelite sets up an idol in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face, then goes to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. Wow. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have deserted me for their idols. The surgeon wants to recapture something. What did he say he wanted to recapture? A heart. Or health. Surgeons try to do things that promote health. The butcher, what does he try to recapture? Whatever he can that will destroy you. The thief comes for one reason. To steal, to kill, and to destroy. You need to not be fooled about God, though. Listen to what he says. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, repent. You make a change in your direction. Quit being led like lambs to a slaughter. <laughs> Turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practice. What does God want? 
He wants them to turn from the things that will destroy them. To renounce wickedness. When any Israelite or any alien living in Israel separates himself from me. Who did the separation? Wow. The butcher's crafty enough to get us to use the knife on ourselves, didn't he? Separates himself from me and sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face, then goes to a prophet to inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. I will set my face against a man and make an example of him and a byword. I will cut him off from my people. There is a principle in this circumstance. He says, I love you as an individual very much. I want you as an individual very much to repent. Please put away your idols. Please turn from detestable practices because most of all I want to heal you. But if you will not and you become a stumbling block to yourself and everyone around you, ultimately the surgeon's going to do what's best for the whole body and he will cut you, the cancer, out. I've noticed something. All of my family is educators, right? What a horrible disappointment I must have been to have not gone very far in education. When people describe their children's problems to educators, they always say it like this. Little Gabriel is in with the wrong crowd. Little Johnny, little Susie, they've just fallen in with the bad people. That's amazing because if you talk to everybody in the class, they all say the same thing. When do we acknowledge that little Johnny or little Susie is the bad crowd? When do we do that? The reason we preach the messages that we have is to correctly look in the mirror, to identify our hearts so that the surgeon can cut out what doesn't belong and heal us, so that it doesn't butcher us. God will examine the motives behind our thoughts. So we better examine the motives behind our thoughts. Perversion, dissension, gossip, separate. Habitual sin kills us. God desires to recapture us. The butcher desires for us to be cut off. Look at Matthew 25. We'll see if we can bring some of this home. For Matthew 25, you'll hang a right. You'll find the New Testament. It'll be the first book in the Newer Testament. That brother's fast. Two of you are there. Where are the rest of you? Who likes long division? Nobody jumped up. Now, truthfully, I know Fred spent most of his life working in mathematics as practical solutions to problems. So I'm going to get his help later in this. Long division. Division is one of those words that means various things, doesn't it? To be divided can mean to be separated from two things. That can happen through people walking away. You can divide something with a sharp instrument by cutting it into two halves. Division can mean the way two numbers relate to each other. Division is a word with various meanings. In the 25th chapter of Matthew, we're going to set aside that thought of division for a moment and look at a big picture. In the 31st verse, it says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. Uh that happen? Have y'all seen Jesus show up with all of the angels 
sitting on thrones, all the nations gathered before Him. I haven't seen that either. This is an event that most Christians have been taught to look forward to. A parasusia, if you will. The age of perfection. But before healing, before perfection comes, something has to happen. All the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. How interesting. We think of sitting before a judgment as God examining every deed in your life and then pronouncing you guilty or innocent. Isn't that how we often think of that? Let me ask you something. When they all assembled and Jesus shows up and there is a group there, right? Some of them are already sheep and some of them are already goats. That's very clear to a shepherd. Very clear to the judge. God did not pronounce some sheep and pronounce some goats. Who did that? Well, let's keep reading. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. The righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did, did. The word did, D-I-D. Is that in past tense or present tense? The things they had already done pronounced them either a sheep or a goat. The shepherd shows up to put them in their proper categories. But truthfully, what were they the day before the shepherd showed up? Either a sheep or a goat. Hmm. The king will reply, I tell the truth, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for, of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are, what's that word? Cursed. Into an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Who is the eternal fire prepared for? The butcher. The eternal fire is prepared for the butcher. But mankind separates himself into two groups. Those who will be cut by the Word of God to be healed... And those who choose to be cut by the butcher and get killed. God did not divide these people. God did not choose this one will be a sheep and this one will be a goat. He simply showed up to correctly, righteously judge which category we fell into. You know what's amazing about that? That's a little bit like giving all of you a scalpel and saying, Hey, would you like to butcher yourself or heal yourself? Who would choose to butcher themselves? And yet anybody that's ever watched the lifestyle of an alcoholic can see they're butchering themselves. And is that sin really any different than any sin that you've been a part of? Sin will always take you further than you wanted to go to a place you never wanted to end up in and leave you in a state you never hoped for or dreamed about. Hmm. You know, Deuteronomy teaches this principle. Jesus did not invent this. Jesus was 
is the living example of the Word. He's as great as it gets. Deuteronomy 27.12. You don't have to turn there, but please, if you take notes, write it down. Deuteronomy 27, the 12th verse, says, Hey, Moses, his name's Moshe in Hebrew. Isn't that more fun to say? Moshe, right? Moshe, I want you to have some of the people stand on Mount Ebal. We can go ahead and put Ebal over here. And I want some of the men to go stand on Mount Gerizim. And from Mount Ebal, what I want you to announce to all the people of God are the curses that happen when you don't follow God's Word. And from Mount Ebal, they announced curses and they wrote them in stone. If you do not obey God's Word, this is what happens. You get butchered. If you do obey God's Word from Mount Gerizim, they said, here's what happens, and you get blessed. One side contained a curse. The other side contained a blessing. Who made the choice which category they fell into? Every day we make a choice. Will we be blessed or will we be cursed? Have you ever looked at another family and said, the ball always seems to bounce their way. I don't understand it. And everything they do, it just works out for them. Really. Integrity is what you do when nobody is looking. The obedient are blessed because of what they have done in secret. God shouts from the mountaintops for everybody to see. The obedient are blessed for one reason. The cursed are also blessed with a different kind of blessing for another reason. God blessing, God cursing is not some magical, mystical hocus pocus that comes from a Latin church. All of that is ridiculous. What God does is He simply says, here is the way to win and here is the way to lose. Another way might be to think about this. My wife likes a movie about a guy named Bobby Fisher. His name was Robert James Bobby Fisher. In 1972, he became the first and only American to ever win the title Grandmaster Chess Master Guy, whatever, Guru, Wizard. The Grandmaster Wizard is some guy in Mississippi with a strange hat on, right? So imagine this. When we stand up and say, I am blessed, and we act as if it was our doing, right? Why are you blessed, biblically? For doing whatever God told you to do. When you stand up and say, I am cursed, and it is God's fault. Why are you cursed? For not doing what God said to do. This would be a little bit like playing chess with someone. You have a chessboard in front of you. The only problem is, you have no idea how to play chess. But it just so happens that somebody benevolently has gone out and found Bobby Fisher to sit behind you. And you simply move a piece when he says to move it. And lo and behold, at the end of the game, who do you think wins? The Holy Spirit in our life is like Bobby Fisher teaching you to play chess. He says when to move, when not to move, when to hold, when to stand, when to do all of those things. And the end of the result is you are blessed. But although Bobby Fisher is there, if you decide, you know, I like this funny looking piece, I think I'm going to lead with it, and you lose, can you blame Bobby Fisher? Being blessed or being cursed is the sum total of your own choices. It is not mystical. It is not even spiritual. It is the result of your own actions. 
Now, what kind of things were said about sheep? What did they do? They fed the hungry, right? They gave drink to the thirsty, right? What else did they do? They clothed. What what would you call that? Maybe compassion? Huh? They visited people in prison. Could that be forgiveness? Could it be love? Something like that? What else did they do? Huh? They invited strangers in, didn't they? Could could we maybe call that hospitality? Wait, uh, the goats. What did they not do? They didn't do all of these things. What would be the opposite of love? Oh, well, they hated. What would be the opposite of forgiveness? They harbored. They bitter. Uh, when you give somebody clothes, what are you doing? You're putting their needs before yours, right? Well, if you don't do that, what does that make you? Selfish? Oh, my goodness. So when we start to look at all these things, what we start to find out is when Galatians 5 says, The fruits of the sinful nature are obvious. There are things like sexual immorality. Isn't that a way to be selfish? They're impurity. That's not love. They're debauchery. It's idolatry. It's witchcraft. It's hatred. It's discord. Jealousy. Fits of rage. Selfish ambition. Dissensions. Factions. Envy. Drunkenness. Orgies. What we're really describing is when we follow what seems right to us, it puts us in a cursed category and ready to be butchered by our own actions. Really, the question today is, the knife's in whose hands? Is it God doing these things to us? Or is God just describing the event for us? Being willing to stand behind us like a master chess player saying, hey, this is how it works. Move this way. Do that way. And when we don't do it, we put ourselves in a cursed category. Isn't that amazing? When we listen to Him, what happens? The fruit of Him being in our life produces things, I don't know, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and here's a big one, self-control. His presence in our life should show up in the things that we do. Division. I promised to talk to you about long division, didn't I? If you thought spelling in front of people was hard, you'll love this. Arithmetic has something called long division. The reason that long division exists is because we need a procedure to break down things into a series of simpler steps. For instance, I say, Cody, what is 950 divided by 4? What does Cody do? He looks at me like a monkey staring at a computer, right? The gnats begin to circulate around his mouth as the cave opens, right? But is that really hard? Well, it's really hard to arrive at that conclusion immediately. It is not hard if we take very simple steps. So what do you do? We draw this little thing, right? What is that? Huh? This is a little symbol for long division, right? There's another symbol for division, though, isn't there? We got one of these, don't we, somewhere? Right? Why don't we use that one? You use this one when there are no steps, right? This is for a problem that looks like this. Right? Easy, one step. The church lives right here. 
Yeah. Four and two. Yeah. The church lives right here. What the church says most of the time is, this is so simple, guys. There's a cross, and all you have to do is relate to the cross properly, and this is the answer that you get. So simple. The problem is, our problems are not as simple as four divided by two, are they? We have all kind of problems, like mom and dad didn't really love me when I was little. They sent me off to do this, and so and so abused me in this way, and my priest was weird, and on and on and on. Our problems are never four divided by two. They are more like four into 950 problems. Truthfully, we should take seven and divide it by 22. Y'all know that one, right? This is a problem, is it not? In fact, in this system, we call this something. Can anybody stretch and tell me what this is? What the four, the number to the left of our little box is? It's a divisor. Right? See, I Wikipedia things. And what is this? Dividend. Street Matthew used to live on. Yeah, yeah, the dividend. Right? Doctors do that all the time. What is this thing up here called? It's a quotient. I think I even spelled that one right. No? Yeah, close. What you do is you take a factor and you divide it into another one and you get something. I can't do that still. I still can't look at 950 and figure out what the answer is to this. So somebody has figured out steps that we take to be able to do that, right? What do you do? You take the first number and you divide it by the second. And then we have another step, and another, and another. And in this one, because it doesn't divide evenly, we get a decimal up here, and we get a remainder. And you learn to work through these steps. And if you have a really sweet teacher, what do they do? Even if you come up with the wrong answer, they look at the intention that you tried to take through the steps to get this right. Am I wrong? Y'all are looking at me crazy. Am I wrong? 237.5, right? Yeah, I did it before I walked up here. Okay? You take steps to arrive at the conclusion. I want to submit to you today that what is over here, this divisor in our lives needs to be the Word. Right? What is right here that is dividend? This is We are constantly being divided by the Word. What mathematics calls a quotient, the Bible calls fruit. And when you take your life and rightly divide it by the Word of God, it produces the fruit that the surgeon wanted over here. The devil has arithmetic too, though. He doesn't take these same things. Instead of the Word, we have over here natural instinct. We're still in the box, still being divided by something. This is still us. What is here is the fruit of the sinful nature. It's death. This fruit is always blessing. This one is always cursing. Always. As we think about this, Deuteronomy 19 teaches us something. I'm going to close here in just a minute. Rightly dividing your life by the Word of God. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. Long division. We don't like long division for a reason. It requires many steps to arrive at the right answer. We like our problems very, very easy. Our lives don't have simple problems. They really don't. 
We have more than 6,000 years of human history being separated from God. The wrong thoughts being sown into us. We need to recognize some simple steps. Here's how the devil divides you. The 19th chapter of Deuteronomy. Look at the 11th verse. But if a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, assaults him and kills him. There is a progression there. We did not start with killing him. We started with hating him. Hating him caused premeditation. You lied in wait for him. Hate plus a little premeditation led to an assault. Hate, premeditation, and assault led to a murder. The butcher takes steps to divide you. Very few of us step forward and say, I want to be a murderer! But we willingly play with hate, don't we? And the longer you play with it and you premeditate it, you begin to consider things you never would have considered otherwise because they deserve it. And the longer you dwell in that premeditation, you choose to take actions that you would never have considered otherwise. Like, I just won't ever call them back. Next time I see them in public, I'll give them a piece of my mind. And we murder reputations and careers and relationships. The devil has steps of long division and it starts with a carnal thought that wasn't casted down. I've been trying to teach that now for about four weeks. James 1.14 is on our wall. In fact, I'll read it to you off our wall. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted by his own evil desires. The knife's in whose hand? You say, the devil did it! The, devil did it. the knife is in our hands. The devil has no power over you except to suggest something contrary to God's Word. That's the only power he has in your life. We choose to butcher ourselves and our own actions. We choose the curse instead of the blessing. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Jude is that tiny little book right before the book of Revelation. It has no chapters because it's not long enough to be divided into chapters. And Jude in the 19th verse comes up with this summation. He says, The men that divide you are men who do not have the Spirit and follow mere natural instincts. The King James Bible speaking about the same people sounds like it's cursing. It calls them dumb word for donkey. There's a reason. We have access to Bobby Fisher in the chess game. But instead, we choose to listen to the butcher. We have access to a selfless surgeon who wants to heal us, who concern, is concerned with our health. But instead, we choose to listen to the selfish butcher who's perverse and wants to kill us so he can use our flesh for other things. Hebrews 4.12 teaches us how to rightly divide our life. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews. A couple more Scriptures and we are done. But I want to give you some steps for proper long division. Tell me when you're in Hebrews 4. 
If you give up on me now, you didn't wait long enough. Steps to long division. When you can't divide 950 by 4, you divide 9 by 4. Come up with 8, take what's remaining, and divide it again. And you take what's remaining, and you divide it again. And you take what's remaining, and you divide it again. The steps to long division have to taking a bite at a time. I can't divide the whole thing, but I can divide this much. Wow, look what's left over. I'm going to divide this much. Wow, there's still some left over. And you keep doing it until there is nothing left over. The Bible calls this process sanctification. Hebrews 4, the 12th verse says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. The Word of God will separate your joint from marrow and then what's left? A soul and spirit. He will separate that. He will keep rightly dividing your life, breaking it up into smaller and smaller pieces until all that is left over has been dealt with by God. We call this lordship. That's a name that the church is not very familiar with because we're used to calling Jesus Lord when His Word has not penetrated even the smallest areas of our life. I sat with two pastors here recently and I made three biblical references that Judah would have picked up on easily. And they missed all three. Is it any wonder that the decisions that they're making are not benefiting them? Is it any wonder? And if those are the pastors, what do you think about their church? I'm not mad at these men. I want to help them. I love them. I see that their hearts are in the right place. The problem is they're being butchered instead of operated on. And they don't even know it. Every area of our life needs to be divided by the Word of God. And is it really that hard? Is it really that hard to know how we're to relate to God? Write down Micah 6.8. It says, And what, O man, does God require of you? Oh, well, He wants you to act justly. He wants you to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. The steps to long division make your problems very simple. Can you divide 950 by 4 in your head? Maybe not. But you can take the first step and divide 9 by 4. Can't you? Of course you can. You may not know what to do in every situation, but you can certainly say, is this flowing out of justice? Is this flowing out of mercy and humility? Or is this something more perverse, dissension, gossip, faction? We can take those kind of steps. When we feel powerless to employ those steps, to actually do them, we have standing with us the King of Kings who has done it perfectly every time and He's made His strength available. I want to read you a scripture. Two more and we'll close. I'll probably quote you the last one instead of reading it, but I want you to read this. Turn to the book of Mark. I want you to read this because in the American church there's been no emphasis put on it. And in the Spirit-filled churches that I've come out of, 
there's been less emphasis put on it. This is the 10th chapter of Mark and the 17th verse. This may actually surprise you. It's familiar, but I doubt seriously that you've rightly divided it. As Jesus started on His way, a man ran up to Him, fell on His knees before Him, said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why are most people in church? Don't they want to inherit eternal life? Isn't that the question at hand? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know, (laughs) by the way, Jesus starts off with probing him to find out, do you really know who I am? Well, the guy has no answer. But listen, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and said, How did Jesus answer the question? How did Jesus answer the question, What must I do to inherit eternal life? He started with the commandments, didn't he? I love being led by God's Holy Spirit. But it is supremely ignorant to think that you no longer need His written word. And His written Word starts in the book of Genesis. And God has made it very, very easy. Think about this. There are ten commandments. The first four deal with how you should treat God. The next six deal with how you should treat your fellow man. Now, I in the past have said many times, but wait, there's 613! Yeah, some deal only with a high priest. Is there a high priest anywhere in Israel today? Some deal only with Israel. Right? Are you in Israel today? Some are only for men. Good news, you ladies. Some are only for women. Good news, you men. Some are only for certain feasts during the year. But if you borrow your neighbor's mower and you break it and you want to know what's right to do, you might get to read what happens if you accidentally kill your neighbor's ox because God tells you exactly what to do. Can't we look at God's Word and be led by His Spirit and know what to do in every situation? Of course we can. Say, but wait, isn't all of that a legal burden? Obedience is never a burden. Obedience is never legalism. They're not the same thing. You know what legalism is? When you make up your own rules and you add to what God said to make yourself look better. Legalism is the result of religion. Obedience is the result of doing what God told you to do. Now, the one that I want to quote to you is Matthew 22, 37 through 40. He says, But which is the greatest of the commands? Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, for all of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. So how do we make sure that we're divided to heal instead of divided to kill? You make sure that everything that you do is based on your love for God and your love for your fellow man. And when you simply don't know what to do, the Holy Spirit is there to remind you of something, the Word of God, so you will know what to do in that situation. Friends, all men are without excuse. All men. That includes you. 
What we do from this moment forward forms the sum total of our lives at the end. There will be a quotient at the end of this. Your life will bear some kind of fruit. And that will determine whether you are a sheep or whether you are a goat. And it's not what happens at the end. It's what happens tomorrow, today. It's what happened yesterday. They're the choices we make every moment of our lives. Will you extend God's rule in your actions? Or will you glorify the enemy and extend hell into the friends of God around you? This is the choice before us. And like my friend Elijah said, choose today. If God is God, serve Him. If Baal is God, serve Him. But don't waver between two opinions. Make up your mind to be sold out or get out. One way or another, we can be healed or butchered. It's your choice. Stand to your feet.